0: Happy New Year 2023, and welcome to Sunday Coffee Art, Design, and Architecture. This show is coming to you from a chilly, Florida gorgeous Sunday morning overlooking the gentle lapping waves on the Gulf of Mexico. My motivation for this podcast channel is to broadcast good news stories, interesting people, and food for thought. So pour yourself a nice hot cup of tea or coffee, take a deep breath. Get cozy and enjoy a break for some uplifting conversations. And today's book is The Progress Illusion Reclaiming Our Future from the Fairy Tale of Economics by John Erickson, published by Island Press in 2022. John is a Blitterstorff Professor of Sustainable Science and Policy at the University of Vermont. And a faculty member of the Rubenstein School of Environment and Natural Resources, and a fellow of the Gund Institute for the Environment. His previous co authored and edited books include Sustainable Well Being Futures, The Great Experiment in Conservation, Ecological Economics of Sustainable Watershed Management, Frontiers in Ecological Economic Theory and Application. And finally, Ecological Economics, a workbook for problem-based learning. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Well, I like to start off since this is a chilly day, and I ask my guests, what's in your cup this morning?
1: (laughs) Well, my usual fare is coffee, so I have some coffee with some fresh ground beans and a little bit of milk and some Vermont maple syrup. Oh, Vermont maple syrup? Absolutely, yeah, it's the law here in Vermont you have to you have to sweeten things with syrup,
0: oh, that sounds lovely <laughs> free free plug for Vermont syrup up there, absolutely. well, I'm having just a nice little cup of tea. It's a little chilly here in Florida when we get started. Um I got some black tea, and that'll motivate us to start so what's your motivation for writing this particular book
1: well sort of my midlife crisis book, right? It's a, it's a reflection on my career in ecological economics. You know, as, as I was back going to school, ecological economics was just being born in the late 80s, early 90s. And so folks like me were supposed to be created, uh, folks that were questioning the status quo of mainstream economics, people who were challenging the very logic of economics, building a more ecological brand of economics. So this is a reflection back on... Uh, 25, 30 years of doing just that.
0: So what kind of an economist are you?
1: (laughs) Well, I call myself an ecological economist. So the, the intent here is to really think more like an ecosystem. Think about an economy that's embedded in society and a society that's embedded in ecosystems and how these three things, economy, society, environment, are all interdependent on one another. Uh, that the health of the economy goes with the health of the environment, ultimately. Um, so, ecological economics—we're really um, trying to promote a, a new idea of an economy that obeys the laws of nature <laughs> instead of the instead of the made-up laws of humans.
0: Now, you talked in your book a little bit about it was interesting the history of economics, and I'm from about the time also where you know we we start with widgets and they tell us all about <laughs> supply and demand, and I'm like, yeah, okay. That's great. And I moved along. So can you tell us a little bit more about the history of teaching or training economists? What is, what is that about? How do we get started with all this?
1: Well, there's all kinds of flavors of economics. Um, some that have embraced history, some that have embraced the full scope of humanity, some that really can center justice and power and equity, but the main brand of economics that's taught in most of our econ 101 courses and most of our econ departments, our business schools our, our top you know top tier economics programs tends to be a brand called neoclassical economics and it's a brand that really um, atomized the human that in the most elite program it's really become kind of a, an abstract branch of mathematics. Um, where you're really trying to understand and perfect the economic system based on a sort of, uh, yeah, the first fairy tale that I uncovered. uh, Based on a fairy tale, this highly individualistic version of the human being. Based on a fairy tale of supply and demand and very eloquent equations that are sketched on a blackboard. Based on a fairy tale of always and everywhere thinking about decisions – the science of decisions, at the next unit, the marginal unit. You know, what's the next benefit? What's the next cost? And lacking a kind of big-picture view, a more comprehensive view, a more holistic systems-oriented view of the economy. So, you know, part of this book is kind of unpacking the, the tales we are told as economic students, as economic policymakers, as economic uh, advisors, and, and really imagining uh, a new path forward, a new way of healing and compassion And care.
0: Okay, fairy tale. So um, let's start. Give me me another fairy tale. What's the fairy tale we've heard?
1: I can expand on this fairy tale of the individual. So Thorsten Veblen probably said it best. He was an economist back at the turn of the last century in 1899, wrote about the kind of core model of economics, which, believe it or not, we still teach today, is based on how he put it a homogeneous globule of desire. (laughs) And I'm not sure there's ever been a more accurate description of this kind of so-called agent in most of our economic models. This person, this atomized person who doesn't think about the future, doesn't think about others, only thinks about him or herself, and it usually is a him in these models. Nothing could be further from the truth when we Line economics with other fields of study, with psychology, with sociology, with anthropology, with evolutionary biology, we see this richer form of humanity, a form that does compete but also cooperates, a form that um, maybe is greedy and selfish at times, but in the right context, especially in the context of family and community, is very cooperative and caring and compassionate. So we've been kind of duped into the story of, uh, as I start with my book, the famous you know Michael Douglas' speech in the movie Wall Street, we've been duped into the story of greed is good, greed is acceptable, greed should be rewarded. Um, and I think that's really led us down the road of planetary ruin.
0: Yes. And you talked too about, you just said he in all this, and where does economic justice, you know, when women enter the workforce was, I'm going back to Downton Abbey a little bit, and I looked it up, you know, women enter the workforce when all the men went off to war. Um, so how does um, the founding of our country, or economic model and pl- politics, how does this all interrelate?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was part of the journey of writing this book, Is which is another fairy tale, is embracing history, really trying to understand where the mainstream story of economics comes from. Um, we tend to ignore history in our economics programs as, as if the current system is, has been perfected. Yet, if you go back in time, you realize that the rise of economics as a male-dominated discipline, as a highly isolated discipline, isolated from other social sciences and other natural sciences, really arises kind of hand-in-hand with a wealthy elite class in the Americas, in, in the UK, and Europe. It, it arises hand-in-hand with a kind of power grab. Now, granted, most people go back to the sort of the prophet, if you will, Adam Smith, as the founding of modern economics, and back to, in particular to his Wealth of Nations in 1776. And in his life and time, he was trying to develop a kind of economics that took power away from the merchant class, away from the state, away from the church, and towards the individual, right, towards individual rights. Uh, and that was a, you know, very worthy pursuit. But we've we've kind of swung that pendulum all the way, to really lifting the individual, particularly, you know, the individual already with power and privilege above all else. And so, yeah, part of this, writing this book was to understand how that pendulum in economics has swung back and forth between highly individualized, highly market-based, highly greed-oriented flavors of economics, to flavors of economics that um, are more feminist in origin. For example, feminist economics is is a heterodox school of economics um, that really tries to understand that all flavors of economics are based on power, are based on struggle, right, are based based on um, competition between classes and races. Um, and so we tell this story in economics of like objectivity, right, as if we're just describing the world go by, <laughs> and that economics is values free. And nothing could be further from the truth.
0: Well, okay, that kind of leads to another thought is, why do we use, you said in your book about the economics to sidestep moral judgments on what we value?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about how we've mathematized and atomized the individual in in, in economics, it helps us kind of avoid moral arguments, moral persuasion, um, moral questions. In fact, if you go back to the early days of economics, um, Adam Smith and and, uh, Karl Marx and Thorsten Veblen, who I mentioned, and uh, all the folks who kind of crafted the study of economics in the 1800s, 17 and 1800s, they were called moral philosophers. (laughs) Their job was to sort of make arguments around the morality of exchange and the morality of labor and the morality of capital ownership. Um, And as as economics became mathematized and created into this highly, highly um, abstract model, things like morality were left to the wayside. Things like land and environment were left to the wayside. Everything was counted in widgets and dollars. And so economics training nowadays kind of, as I said, as you said, sidesteps moral questions because it says, well, let the market figure it out. Go to the marketplace and vote with your dollars. This this is fair. This is just. Just let people signal to this omnipotent being, the market, of what their preferences are. And who are we, you know, other people or the state or, or collections of humans? Who are we to tell the individual what to do with his or her hard-earned money? And so when you start to sort of center morality and center power and ask questions like, where do those so-called earnings come from? <laughs> do they come from just the individual or do they come from investments of society? Do they come from the equity of the environment? Then you really start to unpack the questions that the original economists, the classical economists were, were, were talking about.
0: Well, I guess my spontaneous question is where do I get my hard-earned dollars to go vote with?
1: Yeah, so this is, this is the separation between voting with your vote and voting with your dollar. Right, so part of the sidestep of morality and economics is, as I said, you know, go to the marketplace and vote with your dollars. Well, not everyone has a dollar to vote with, right? Not all preferences of what we'd like in this world, what we'd like in society, uh, are accurately displayed through the dynamics of supply and demand. What what Smith called the invisible hand. You know, markets and economics shouldn't trump governance and democracies shouldn't trump the ability of, of communities of people to come together right and decide on a set of rules uh, economics itself capitalism itself is based on a set of rules and so we should always and everywhere ask who are the role, who are the rules written by and for um, you know this is huge and this is another part of the the illusion of economics if we just craft our decision systems to decide only about the next thing, right The next widget, the next choice, the next benefit, the next cost. And based on, on kind of you know go to the marketplace and vote with your dollars on the next, right go to the grocery store and buy your next grocery. <laughs> go to the marketplace and sell your next unit of labor. The reality is is when you add up all those small decisions over time, they often result in an outcome that none of the individual decision makers Never would have voted for. It's what economist Alfred Kahn called the tyranny of small decisions, right? Each of those individual decisions makes sense in this kind of sense of a person at a point in time thinking about themselves. But when you add up all those decisions together and they result in failing schools. They result in traffic jams. They result in climate change, species extinction, right? They result in wild swings within the marketplaces. We have to ask ourselves, if market trumps democracy, do we have this backwards?
0: Well, that made me think too, is, okay, I vote with my dollars. And by the way, I have my own business. So I I do understand the practical part of, uh, I have a very small business, And when I want to buy transportation, I have been to Europe and I've been across the United States and I love my car, but I don't need it for everything, but I don't have a choice but to buy some type of a car. Um, So do I really have choice that I think I have?
1: Well, that's the point, right? Um, The market only reflects the choices that were um, created by certain people's preferences with certain buying power. What's not reflected is is in the things that we wish we had. A better public transport system, right? Um, Investments in in climate mitigation, climate adaptation. Um, Better, stronger rules and governance that we all have to play by. So what we've done in ecological economics is we've kind of flipped the goals on their head. Basically, in economics, the goal is to grow the system forever and forever, amen, and to grow it in the most efficient way possible. We say instead that in a 21st century economy, we should first and foremost be asking the question, growth for what purpose, growth for whom, and growth for how long, right? We can't grow this thing called the economy inside a finite environment forever and ever and ever and ever. And in fact, growth has benefits and growth has costs. So what we tend to do in economics is tally the benefits and ignore the costs, or tally the benefits and externalize the costs on those without power, like the future. So if we first and foremost ask the question, what size should the economy be relative to the sustaining and containing ecosystem? That's an important question, that the sustainable scale of an economy that we just don't ask in your basic mainstream economics class. And then we should be also asking sort of hand in hand, who gets the benefit and who gets to, who pays the costs of this economic system? Um, by my read, what we've done is we've um, created, um, you know, it's, it's kind of rugged individualism, rugged capitalism for the poor and socialism for the rich in, in a country like ours, where it's, it's those who've been able to garner power and keep it through buying that power in the halls of Congress and elsewhere that have, have if you if you will, rigged the economic system in their favor. But again, we don't get to that question of justice and power because we only lead with the last question, the last goal, which should be efficiency, right? The marginal benefits and marginal costs, right? How should we efficiently allocate resources over time? If you lead with the efficiency question, you might never get to the scale and distribution question. And so we have this kind of three-tiered gold system in mind in ecological economics. How big the economy should be, who gets the benefits and who gets the burdens of the economy, And then only then, how should we allocate resources through the market or otherwise?
0: Well, that was, okay, that's a good segue. that was
1: a mouthful. You got me up on my soapbox now. (laughs) Good.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay, that's perfect. So I didn't know that there was a summit and they decided to tally up how much the ecology is worth. And they came up with a number. Can you tell us more about how did all this ecological numbering start?
1: Yeah, I mean, my, my colleagues in ecological economics, we've been on this slippery slope. We realize that the rules of the game currently as written are rules that are written in terms of dollars. That value is written in terms of gross domestic product. That most decision makers just want to know what's the cost-benefit ratio. How much is it going to cost? What are we going to get in ter- return for benefits? So if you stay within that system, the challenge is, of course, all those things that don't fit into the market model. For example, um, a stable climate, (laughs) habitat for non-human species, fresh water that comes so-called for free from common resources like lakes and rivers and streams and groundwater. If these things aren't tallied and traded in the marketplace, then they're all but ignored, or at least they're undervalued, right? And so some of the exercises that have happened in ecological economics is to go about trying to put dollar values uh, on these so-called non-market benefits and costs, pricing the priceless, if you will, like a stable climate. An article came out in, uh, I think it was 1997 or 98, a uh, front cover of the journal Nature, on pricing the planet, right, with an exercise that tallied the planet at the time, three, you know, the worth of the non-human part of the planet is three times the value of global world product or global GDP. So again, I mean, that's a great exercise to kind of point to decision makers and say, hey, look at all of these economic benefits that we're ignoring by just tallying the things that are traded in markets. But there's also, there was also a worry that came along with that study, and the worry was if you commodify everything, then everything becomes, the word we use in economics is substitutable for one another, tradable for one another, right? If I start to say what a wetland's worth, what soils are worth, or what um, the ability of, of a forest environment to stabilize climate, then can I sort of pay off the environment? Can I trade those things away? Can I say, hey, a wetland's only worth this much and a shopping mall is worth this much, so pave it over. Drill, baby, drill. Let's do this. So it's a slippery slope when we start to commodify nature. And it, again, it kind of prioritizes economic values over ethical and moral values. It pri- prioritizes economic values over science-informed democracy. Um, nowadays, you're more apt to see a conservation biologist argue for the worth of species in dollars and cents than an extinction risk. And um, I think that's problematic.
0: I do too. I got my master's degree. I did a second career later in life. And you're right, you know, business has a finiteness uh, to the market. I had a photography business and I quickly reached the finite of it. And of course, then we had, oh, you know, let's go back into this. I like this Occupy Wall Street when we all crashed. Yeah. Um, and then I did a, a career change for a lot of reasons, but that was one of them. How does Occupy Wall Street play into all this with our ecology?
1: Yeah, well, every time the growth model stops working, when we go into a recession, especially a deep recession like we were in 2008, 2009, people sort of look up from their busyness and go, "Hey, <laughs> system's not working it's not working for me, it's not working for my kids, it's not working for my family. There's lots of illusions and delusions. In the current system, and that's that was the Occupy Wall Street moment. That was the COVID nineteen recession moment as well. Like, hey, the system's not working. We're dependent on these, you know, global supply chain, and we've lost control over our future. And who's in charge, anyways? You know, our elected officials, or you know, corporate executives. And so, um, yeah, when I, when I went down to Occupy Wall Street in, in New York City, um, there were so many issues on the table and so many conversations happening um, all across the board. But what they had in common was questioning the status quo, questioning who was in charge, who was in power. What they had in common was asking who benefits from the current economic system and who pays the costs. And I think from Occupy Wall Street, we got the 1% narrative. From Occupy Wall Street, we got um, things such as the the popularity of the Senator Sanders presidential campaign, two, two, two runs at it. From Occupy Wall Street, um, there, there was a wake-up call of a lot of people saying, we don't want to go back to normal. Normal was already broke. But, of course, following Occupy, and following the so-called Great Recession, all the political class just kept saying, let's get back to normal. Um, and we did, and we grew, and most of the growth went to the 1%. <laughs> so, yeah, following the pandemic um, crisis, we're asking the same questions. You know, the political class is just saying, let's get back to normal. And most folks where normal wasn't working for them are saying, we don't want to go back to normal. Normal was already in crisis. Let's try something different.
0: If economics are the method, the object is to change the heart and soul.
1: <laughs> yeah, this was a um, Margaret Thatcher quote.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just oh, looked at it. I'm like, yep, that's I a was, good one. I was
1: thinking uh, Ronald Reagan's counterpart. Yeah, <laughs> So the Thatcher Reagan years. Yeah, this is sort of the, the, the kind of overarching tone of my book. I think, I think the tools of economics are great. The methods of economics are great. Right? you know, But economists need to be knocked off their pedestal. Um, economists should be mechanics of the economy, janitors of the economy, technicians of the economy, right? We should be called to help make the economy work better in service of society, in service of democracy, in service of the people. But what's happened instead, and most recently going back to the Thatcher-Reagan years, is we had what's what's been called the neoliberal turn, where all social relations were reduced to market logic. And so the the, the logic of the market system and the mentality of the kind of cost-benefit calculus became our worldview, not just our tools to meet higher ends, but they became the ends in and of themselves. And I think that's the danger when the economist becomes cultural profit versus the economist as um, just another handyman trying to do their job.
0: Well, that's true. And I remember when Freakonomics came out and at first I found that kind of interesting, but now it's, it got to be so much, (laughs) it felt like pressure. It's like, I I just can't take this pressure of thinking about everything is um, money,
1: yeah free economics is an example of taking these sort of really simple rules and logics from economics especially marginal benefits equals marginal costs right if something if the benefits of the next choice equal or greater than your cost then you do it and so all we need to do is take that logic and reduce everything to that calculus benefits and costs and that's essentially what free economics does reduces everything all social relations all environmental relations relations between um, you know, with your spouse, with your partner, with your kids, <laughs> with your family, reduce them all to economic units, and we can use this system to make all our choices for us. There's a lot of humanity that's lost <laughs> it down that path, right? Uh, and a lot of assumptions that are made in this so-called value-free system of market exchange, a lot of assumptions that are made about that homogeneous globule of desire that just aren't true.
0: No, because, you know, it, we, well, I think we, I was a psychology major first. I was my bachelor's degree. And, uh, to, I had, I'd have to go look up the studies and see if they're what we have currently. But I don't think people make logical decisions at all. I mean, <laughs> I don't think that, I think that most of the studies I remember from back in the day, uh, we kind of showed, even in our little experimental psych 101 class, that, um, we don't make logical decisions at all.
1: Right. Yeah. And this is, um, you know, when you start to kind of partner, when economists partner with other disciplines, what is obvious to the everyday person on the street <laughs> starts to become part of our, our research programs, right? For example, emotions often trump rational choice, right? And, and then you start to ask the question about the social and psychological context of choice. And you start to realize that what are so-called behavioral anomalies in the market model, are actually how people think <laughs> or how humans work. And so we've kind of gone through this period of trying to force the humans into the blackboard version of how human choice should work according to economics. Um and I think as a result we've um really taken many steps backwards. The free economics approach, the rationality approach the assumptions of what some have called homo economicus, this fictional subspecies of humans (laughs) that obeys the rules of, you know, these human-made rules of of the economy. Uh, How long are we going to kind of go down that role and realize that what we know from psychology, from the neurosciences, all the hard-won research that's been done in other fields points to a kind of um, architecture that's been built in economics that is just without foundation, without moral foundation and without a, uh, with a biophysical foundation.
0: No. And I was sitting here thinking about my first business for about 20 years. I was a portrait photographer and I knew people didn't make rational decisions and I I did all my own sales and I did all my own bookings. I, I did the whole thing. I had an assistant help you know, a lot of production work, but, um, you could just see how our psychology plays into our choices. It was yes. talk about being on a case study level of how it really works.
1: <laughs> yeah. And the Madison app firms, you know, the marketing world, the worlds of, of commercials and the world that tries to sell us and create taste that we didn't even think we had. They threw out their econ one-on-one books a long time ago. Right. And they embraced psychology to truly understand our deepest desires and fears, and to play on those, and uh, the political science has, has, has done the same. The political class has done the same. Um, economics has lagged in this respect to kind of hang on to this fairy tale of rationality, and it's done great harm.
0: Yeah, and I was thinking about. I recently did a um, little webinar and interview on B. F. Skinner and how our behaviors too we are not conscious of getting all this positive and negative reinforcement for things and how that even plays into our economic choices. Right.
1: Yeah. So when economists have, have worked with behavioral scientists, with worked with neuroscientists and have tested their assumptions empirically, not surprisingly, we've learned that our core assumptions to these behavioral models um, don't hold up. And now, of course, your sort of hardcore mainstream economist will say, "Well, well, 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 all models are wrong; some are useful," which is a statistician quote from George Box, right? All models are wrong, and some are useful, which is true. All models are wrong; some are useful. But I always amend that to, to ask, "Useful for whom?" Right? <laughs> and this kind of brand of economics that atomizes the individual, that puts greed above everything else, that lifts lifts the capital class above above labor. Um, has has been a version of economics that's that's really really helped those in power, and hurt
0: everyone else. Well, I also thought this was interesting. On um, for the viewers, it's uh, listeners. Page one twenty one. I'm from Hawaii, and uh, you were talking about um, the carbon uh, dioxide levels. And at the Earth Summit, you said 1992 in Hawaii, we 356 parts per million. So our choices are not doing us any favors, are they?
1: No, and this is this is another global result of the tyranny of small decisions, right? We're, we're each kind of making those decisions every day to um, heat with fossil fuels, to drive with fossil fuels, to produce with fossil fuels. Yet each new unit of carbon dioxide, methane gas, other carbon chemicals that go into the environment, so-called greenhouse gases, is kind of slowly eating away at the very fabric of actually what makes the, econo- the economy possible, which is a stable environment. And the worst part of it all is that because of how we do economic counting as a nation, gross domestic product, where we count every, every expenditure as a benefit and nothing as a cost, we don't make a distinction between uh, how we spend our money and, and who it harms and who it hurts. So, in the case of climate change, something like a uh, wildfire or um, a hurricane or any other so-called natural disaster actually ends up being, over the near term, an economic boom for many communities as they rebuild their lives, as they rebuild their towns, as they rebuild their communities. It's insane to me, right? That the cost of rebuilding after disasters is seen as a benefit in our economic decision-making. This has to change.
0: Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm like, yeah, Florida yeah, hurricanes.
1: I mean, there are so many of these, speaking of logic, so many of these inconsistencies of what, what we call uh, progress. When we only, when all we do is count this one Holy grail GDP as our metric of, Of human well-being. So we, for a long time in ecological economics, have done the work where we go through GDP, our expenditures, and we count things as benefits and things as costs. We adjust for income and wealth distribution. We factor for all of the use of our time outside of the markets, which which should also be valuable to humanity. Time with family, time with community, time with leisure, right? Um, if, If we kind of construct a society that's just built on growing GDP as fast as possible, then you're also constructing a society that um, counts health care as how much money we spend on health, (laughs) or a society that says um, when you have a child, to be a good economic citizen, you should get that kid into daycare as quick as possible and go back to work, or a society that does not value your volunteer time because it takes away from your paid time. These are all things that I don't know maybe made sense at the birth of neoclassical economics, of the mainstream approach, of the birth of economic accounting back in the 30s and 40s when it was all about, you know, let's we got to grow in order to get people employed. But in a 21st century economy, man, are we are we kind of due for an update? <laughs> Where we should really have a, a a more diverse, pluralistic form of value. Where we should stop um, solving the problems of growth with more growth. Where we should really maybe shift our attention away from the kind of problems of a young economic system, like growth and competition, and towards a maturing economic system, like resilience and cooperation.
0: Yes, and it made me think about, you know, of course I had to price my services as a photographer, but. Recently, also, it was priceless because a client, her husband passed away, and she looked through all those photos and all the emotions and memories and the priceless appreciation of that person really has value. You just can't price.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean... I mean, this is the thing, and this is the absurdity of trying to price the priceless like the environment, is we've gone through great lengths to develop these surveys, willingness to pay, willingness to accept. And ask people to put dollar values on choices that should not and cannot be made in a market context. I mean, if you knew that an MRI was going to save your son or daughter's life, and someone like myself, an economist, came along and said, what's that worth to you?
0: I mean, how
1: do you you even go about – Figuring that out, right? Like, how much are you willing to pay for an MRI to save your kid's life? And this is what we do when we we, we put values on nature, when we put values uh, on on human survival, or, or values on non human life. And so this is this is why when the tools of economics, like willingness to pay surveys, become the world view of society. This is where I think there's great danger and we should all be alarmed.
0: What's the value of water?
1: <laughs> we do it all the time, willingness to pay for water. Willing to, we, we, do, we do economic, uh, economic value of a human life and it more or less boils down to your lifetime productivity. So it means that the average American male is worth way more than a Bangladeshi woman. Is that the right ethical judgment we want to be using for how to do our business in society? I I appreciate you saying that. (laughs) It was a rhetorical question, but I I agree. No, it's not the right thing. And the thing is, is when you bring business leaders together, they agree. Um, You know, for years, I taught this kind of sustainable business boot camp, and we'd bring business folks in from all around the country to the University of Vermont, and we would do this one week intensive on sustainable business. And my experience from that are people in business don't mind and even would like more, ready for this, regulation. (laughs) They want the playing (laughs) field to be set. They want to know the rules of the game. But what they don't like is when they're regulated and their competitors aren't, right? They want fair regulation. They want regulations that level the playing field. They want standard raising regulation, not standard lowering regulation. They want to pay their workforce uh, livable wages, right? They want to be good environmental stewards. But when things are kind of crafted or institutions are created, or when the rules are written around competition at all costs, they get on a treadmill where they can't help themselves. Just to survive, they've got to do things that um, the business leaders themselves think are immoral.
0: I like this quote you have from Carl Sagan. If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe.
1: <laughs> I love that quote, too. Um, and it kind of makes me think about how in economics we kind of start with the market. Like that's that's our that's our origin story, right? Um, we draw this diagram on the blackboard, or these days on the whiteboard, <laughs> with firms on one side, households on the other, they exchange dollars, they exchange resources, there's your economy. And I often draw that picture on the first day of my ecological economics classes, and I ask the students, what's wrong with this picture? And some of them raise their hand and they said, well, where's the environment? And I, oh, it's here, it's a sector of the economy. The environment is inside the economy. What do you think about that? You know, and some of the biology, ecology students scratch their head and says, wait, the environment is Is a system inside the – that doesn't make any sense. Well, I'm like, yeah, there's a coal sector. There's an oil sector. There's a forestry sector. And they're like, wait a minute. If we were going to create a more accurate picture of how the economy works, shouldn't the economy be enveloped by the earth system? Right? So that's the point of that Carl Sagan quote is that in economics – We should start with the principles of the universe, right? We should start with the first and second laws of thermodynamics, for example, which the basic economic model ignores, um, ignores the law that says, uh, you know, matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed. It's kind of like the economic system works on manna from heaven, like magically, things are magically produced and brought into the economic system. We don't ask where they came from or where they go. It ignores the entropy law, right, that as we sort of um, put things into the economic process, it speeds up their degradation. It speeds up their entropy, which in economic terms should be a really important thing to study, right, when you bring a resource from usefulness to disusefulness. And so simply embedding the economy inside of an environmental system changes everything. And that's a kind of basic starting point for us in, in reimagining, reenvisioning envisioning an ecological economy
0: okay, I'm starting my second business and it's, I got my master's degree in landscape architecture. I'm going to be doing landscape design. How can this book help a small business like me make better decisions?
1: Well, it starts to get us thinking about a different story, right? Uh, A story not based on competition and greed and winner takes all, but a story on um, cooperation and resilience and um, compassion it starts to align our kind of economic values and processes with, with our, our kind of ingrained morality and humanity. Now, it's hard to do this one business at a time inside of a system that is discouraging you to do this, right, or encouraging you the other way. I, you know, I have these conversations with business leaders in Vermont all the time. They're like, yes, we buy into the big picture you're trying to sell us, right, that we need to move to a post-growth world. We may even need to degrowth in a degrow in a place like the United States, where each new unit of GDP is probably at this point creating more costs than it's returning in benefits. But how do you boil that down to the micro unit of of a single business or a single person, right? And the truth is, you can't. Um, This is about systems change, right? This is about building alliances of businesses to push on the government to form better regulations, better governance. This is about changing the rules of the economic system from which you and others play in and play by. This this means better community governance, better cooperation. This means, you know, fixing the plutocracy that we have in Washington D.C., right, where it's the moneyed interests that are making decisions, not not the not the interests of every man, woman, child um, in in our country, every citizen, or citizen or not. So, you know, a big message in this book is about social movement building, and that's the kind of change that I don't know always seems to work, right? When enough of us get together and rally the forces and change the system, uh, usually from the inside out and kind of overturn the myths of, of the past generation in in order to create a new story for our generation, that's what we need to do. So I'm a big proponent of, um, business alliances like in Vermont we have Vermont businesses for social responsibility and we have a big project right now that's thinking at that macro scale right how do we lean on our state government our state institutions to change the story so that Vermont isn't is isn't stuck in this mindset of grow at all costs
0: Mm, okay well you know John this is going to lead to my last question you know my cup of tea is pretty much gone. How about your cup of coffee?
1: <laughs> I've been blabbering too much here, apparently, because my cup of coffee is only about two thirds
0: of the way down. Oh, that's okay. That leaves a good segue, though. You could, you'll, you'll be able to sip it after this. Um, <laughs> um, I know we've taken up all your time today. This has been an awesome conversation, and I'll talk about uh, the name of the book and everything in just a second again. Let's uh, ask you, what projects are you working on now?
1: Well, we have a really uh, new, exciting project with the US Department of Energy that is trying to develop an energy shed approach um, to our community energy choices. So, you know, we've thought for a long time about watersheds, right? That communities are embedded in their watersheds and that we should, we need to be thinking about, you know, care of our water. We've thought more recently about food sheds right? The relationship of our communities and our households and our individuals with their food system, you know, how much food comes from away and how much is is grown right right in our own backyards and how do we strengthen food systems to make more resilient food systems um, from a a relocalization perspective. What's exciting about energy sheds are, are similar kinds of questions, right? To kind of build the relationship with our energy systems. Right now, you know, you kind of wake up and once a month you pay your light bill and You fuel your car up and, you know, you, you complain about the cost of oil to heat your home and, and, and most of that money in most communities is spent and leaves your community right away, right? It goes to this highly centralized energy, energy uh, ownership, uh, energy system. Thinking in energy shed terms really starts to get us thinking, well, where does our energy come from? Who pays the cost, and who gets the benefits? How can we keep more of the benefits locally? How can we actually pay for more of the costs locally instead of externalize those costs on distant lands and distant peoples and distant futures? So um, we're working on this energy shed design idea where you can imagine communities coming together to say we want to be part of the transition to a more renewable, resilient, decentralized energy system in a way from a non-renewable polluting Centralized system, and so it speaks to all of these themes we've been talking about in my book. Um, but in terms of uh, of designing designing an energy system, one community at a time.
0: That's awesome. We're gonna get there.
1: We are. The, the The thing is, is we we're already there. It's just not reported on. It hasn't been magnified. It hasn't been scaled up or out. If you if you look around at community scales, the change is all around us.
0: Yes, I can see that with my last book. Um, there was a rural renaissance book from Island yes, Cross, too. Yes, a great book. Yeah, and she was talking about that. They're even doing it in Florida.
1: Absolutely. It's everywhere. In the, in the reddest of red states and the bluest of blue states, the change is all around us.
0: <laughs> that was a Yay. rhetorical question. <laughs> Yay. <laughs>
1: Yay I, I agree. Yay. Let's, ce- let's celebrate. Let's, let's shift the attention of the media to our success stories, not just all the failures
0: that's right well um john thank you so much for being here today this is a really great book and i'm going to tell the audience again the book is the progress illusion reclaiming our future from the fairy tale of economics by john erickson published by island press in 2022 and uh, I'd like to thank you for being here today, John. I'm going to give a little shout-out right now to Island Press because um, if they haven't, if the audience hasn't heard of them, I'm going to read from their press release here. Um, they've got a lot of great books, and I want to thank them for the many books that I've featured on my podcast here. It was founded in 1984 to stimulate, shape, and communicate the information that is essential for solving environmental problems. Today, with more than 1,000 titles in print, and some 30 new releases each year. It is a nation's leading publisher of books on environmental issues. Island Press is driving change by moving ideas from the printed page to public discourse and practice. Island Press's emphasis is, and will continue to be, on transforming objective information into understanding and action. For more information, you can visit islandpress.org for this and many other books. Thank you, Eric.
1: You're welcome. Thank you so much.